Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Note for a time capsule by Edward Wellen. This was first published in Infinity Science Fiction, March 1958. I looked at the uh, copyright date. Uh, it's actually late 1957, so um, this probably came out in January 1950. Uh, sorry, December 1957. Um, and I thought that that was important because that would make it 60 years ago. Um, and in a sense that this is a time capsule now. <laughs> time capsule for the time in which it was written um and i i just think that there's something neat and meta about that and <laughs> I, I like i like that idea good should i give it a shot and read Please the story do. yeah it's only four pages okay note for a time capsule by edward wellen i take it you sociologists living in what to me is the future. I take it there's a future, a future with a place for sociologists. We'll note the unlikely revolution in taste going on now. For your information then, here's what the rating services are reflecting, a sudden upping from the pelvis to the cortex, just in case this will have become a cause for wild surmise. You probably know what the rating services are were to you, but I don't want to tense this document up. Most people nowadays don't know about the rating services. They know of them. Every so often I hear someone say darkly, I don't know about those polls. I never had a call from them and no one I know has ever had a call from them. I keep quiet or mumble something noncommittal. I could say truthfully, I do know about those polls. They ring me up more than 20 times a week. I could say that but I don't. Not so much because I don't want to seem a crackpot or a liar as because I don't want to spoil a good thing, or at least what I think is a good thing. And for the time being, what I think is a good thing is what the world thinks is a good thing. Now, in order for you to get the picture, you must understand that the New York metropolitan area fashions the literary and musical fads of the United States. And the United States, by example, and by infiltration via writings and movies and recordings, fashions the fads of the world. And the New York metropolitan area goes by the opinions I frame. It probably seems strange to you that I, in any amassing of statistics, merely one digit in the neighborhood of the decimal point, can claim to exert such far-reaching influence. But I've seen much the same sort of thing in my work as a CPA. Someone possessing relatively few shares in a holding company may exercise an inordinate amount of power over the national economy. An analogous set of operations makes it possible for me to be an aesthetic shot of digitalis in the body politic. That's why Bartok's microcosmos is at this writing the top tune and why archaeology professor Dr. Lube is high man on the polls with his TV show Dig This and why the world has taken such a turn that you may very likely be calling this the day of the egghead. But you're most likely asking at this point, 
why in the name of statistical probability did this character get so many calls when so many people got none? And your next question is, or did he? Was he a paranoiac? Here's my answer to your second question. I'm certainly not imagining any of this. You're bound to come upon some signs of these times and know what I've said about the revolution in taste is true. Otherwise, there'd be no point in my setting this down or in your reading it. The hard part is to convince you that the rest of it about my role is true. The trouble is there's nothing about me personally that would help me convince you there's nothing uncommon about me except that my tastes were previously uncommon. As I mentioned, I'm a CPA. I live in a suburb of New York City. I have an office in the city. I'm really semi-retired and take care of only a few old business friends. So my listing in the Manhattan phone book doesn't include the term CPA or office. I have a commutation book and the usual gripes about the NYNH and H. As a matter of fact, I'm writing this while commuting, and you'll have to blame not me, but the roadbed and the rolling stock for any of this you may find difficult to decipher. For really, I have a very neat handwriting. Although there's no noticeable pressure of work, I stay on at my office after the girl's quitting time. She still chews gum, but all day yesterday she was humming Bartok's Microcosmos. I balance books until the line at the bottom of the column becomes a bongo board on a decimal point, and then I squeeze my eyes, shake my head, and go home. I live alone. I'm a widower. I have one daughter. Thank goodness she's grown, married, and living in a place of her own, so there's no one to tie up the phone. I've given up frequenting the haunts of my old cronies. Though I miss their argumentative companionship, I take comfort in the fact that I'm furthering our common interests. I don't give a hang that my lawn needs mowing. Let the wind violin through the grass. I'm staying near the phone. It's between seven, six and seven in the evening at the office and between eight and midnight at home that I receive the calls. That brings me to your first question about why I consistently get so many calls when so many people get none. Let me make it clear at once that even if the polls were viable or fixable, and I'm not suggesting they are, I haven't the means to buy or the electronic knowledge to fix supposedly random calls. Besides, I'm fairly ethical. Now, what's the answer? Naturally, I've given this phenomenon more than a bit of thought, and I've formulated a theory to explain, at least to my satisfaction, why what's happening is happening. I believe the drawing power of my phone numbers inheres in the nature of number. Now, don't go getting hot under the collar, if you're still wearing collars, before you hear me out. I'm not talking about numerology or any such mystical hocus pocus. I'm talking about the psychopathology of everyday life. That's what's skewing and skewering the law of probabilities. I know this demands explaining, so I'll be specific. Apart from these calls from the rating services, I keep receiving calls on my home phone from people who set out to dial a certain undertaker, I, I beg his pardon, funeral director. We have the same exchange. In fact, his number differs from mine only in the in that the first of his last four digits is a zero, 
while my corresponding one is a nine. Of course, by now you've put your finger on it. These people are dialing the funeral director because in the current colloquialism, someone's numbers up. They misdial because they're unconsciously saying nine to the zero of death. I've analyzed both my home phone number and my office phone number in this fashion, figuring out what their components connote singly and as gestalts, and I can see why these fortuitous combinings command attention, why these numbers leap out of the directory pages right at you. Privately, I call such a number a common denominator with a way of accreting its numerator. I hope you're not laughing at me. After all, when you remember what number is, what's happening follows naturally. Numbers a language we use to blaze our way through the wood of reality. Without number, we couldn't say what is more or less probable. We couldn't signpost our path. But using number is like trying to detect the emission of a photon without having to receive that photon. The difficulty lies in trying to get number at least one remove from the fount of all language, the human mind, possibly will come closest to order, be at one with reality when we can order number at the level of statistical probability to be truly random at one with chaos. At any rate, there you have it. I'd like to go into greater detail, but I'm afraid to. Before my numbers up and added them, I was content merely to tune out the noisome and fulsome and sigh to myself, that's life. You ask for beer and you get water. That is, I thought I was content. It's only now that I'm getting beer with an egg in it that I realized how passionately I hated the way things were and how passionately I'd hate to have to go back to that way. I don't know how long this phenomenon will go on, but while it lasts, I mean to make the most of it. I unashamedly enjoy watching the expression of bewildered enthusiasm on everyone's face. That expression is there because everyone listens to and looks at what the polls tell him is popular. And because everyone tells himself if he likes it, it's because everyone likes it. But in some respects, my feelings are more uncertain. I'm glad and at the same time sorry for the long hair musicians. It seems more embarrassing than pleasing to them to find themselves suddenly the idols of Bobby Soxers. I try not to think of Stravinsky barricading himself against the adulating adolescence, souveniring him to his underwear. As you can see, I've had to harden my heart. It's tempting to say I've had to become number. And I intend to be even more ruthless. I'm planning, for example, to place on the hit parade Dolly's Concerto and Alpha Wave for Oscillograph and Woodwinds. That's why I'm being exceedingly careful to leave nothing to chance. Though this document is sort of a hostage to fortune, I'm taking into account the possibility that I might lose it while commuting and that it might fall into the hands of some unsympathetic contemporary. So I'm not writing down my phone numbers or my name. I want to keep the line clear for the pollsters. This is a pretty, um, pretty funny story. <laughs> funny in a couple of ways. One way that's funny 
is uh is I'm not sure it's science fiction in the traditional sense, but it's certainly not mainstream fiction. <laughs> right, you are. Uh, as usual with uh, every Welland story, I I take note of I take note of the same thing. We've done one other Welland story here. It was called The Voices uh, for this podcast, um, and this one again it. Welland seems to have a special relationship with the distancing effect of the telephone. Um, in that case, in the case of that story, uh, the voices, it was actually a radio being transmitted into a man's um, dental work, um, kind of. And in this one, it's about the man's relationship with people over the telephone. There's a there's another story, uh, a YA novelette in which uh, Wellen has a, a kid interact with a, an AI entirely through uh, voice communication. There's one in which a story, another story by Wellen called Mouthpiece, in which um, the uh, AI recreation of Dutch Schultz, the uh, gangster is brought back to life and goes goes on a revenge spree. Wellen is obsessed with uh, that medium of vocal transmission. And I, I'm not sure why it's so interesting to me, but I think he's really pointing to it with this paragraph about not a number or the, the numbers, but just number. Are you feeling what I'm transmitting? <laughs> I, I was thinking that um, your pleasure in this being a time capsule, this story called Note for a Time Capsule, mm -hmm. um, is, I think, in a way doubled because you and I are about 3,000 miles apart having this conversation. That's true. And our interaction and our way of dealing with the world um, – is again entirely by voice. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> Wellen's fixation uh, that you point to, in fact, is something that we're living at the moment. Do I do I feel what you're saying about number? I do. I wonder, however, whether it is meant as a satire or not. Yeah. That is. That is the idea that I mean, the, the story as a whole, I think, is satiric in, in some obvious ways that still would, would bear our discussion. But when he says, in a way, I have to harden my heart and become number, he is making a distinction between, as it were, the the numerical and the emotional between science and humanity between the factual and the spiritual and writing a story as if the voice is that of a human being who seeks to to uh, reach out to others. I mean, he is, after all, putting this note in a time capsule or so he says, mm -hmm. while at the same time, having said, I've become inhuman. Um, one can't help but wonder, I can't at least help but wonder if Wellen isn't satirizing those people, not who do the polls, although he satirizes them, and not who 
bend their taste to the polls, although he's satirizing them, but is actually satirizing someone who thinks that he can be better than that, mm. who thinks that it's possible to escape number. I think in a way, Wellen, that is the, the author whose existence we infer behind the speaker, may be pointing out that, that this fellow who has made his life through numbers, this CPA, thinks that he's been able to deal with the world this way, but in fact, he has not. And it's a satire of people who put too much faith in the the processes of modern life. And I, I think we can see that this may be so because here we have someone, a widower, disconnected from the rest of the world, mm-hmm. who purposefully mm-hmm. waits for, as he calls his uh, office person, the girl, mm-hmm. to leave. Um, and he's happy that his daughter lives elsewhere. The only question I have is, does this fellow pathetically want to live and, and have passion to live through these calls from strangers so that he can have some effect on the world because he was always like that and that's why he became a CPA? Or is his current desire to manipulate others and feel good about it a consequence of telling himself that it's okay that his daughter went far away and he is now a widower. Mm. That is, is he relying on number and what you pointed out to us, the the reaching out through the voice, is he relying on that as a compensation for what he has become or was he always like that? I I think the question that you're raising about Wellen's predilection to have people deal with the world coming in at them through voices. Um, this may be a theme for Wellen, and it may be that he's trying to deal with it. And the fact that the satire against the man, the speaker, is not blatant may have to do with Wellen's own complicated attraction to a world in which this is the case. And he can reach out to it by writing and publishing stories. Mm-hmm. I uh, I have a lot of sympathy for this this character and also for Wellen himself because I you know I all my friends are all over the world and I I often get to talk to them uh, in just this sort of manner and I've I've had some of them say you know oh yes if if I was one of them said if I was in the room with you you would think I was rather strange because I wouldn't make much eye contact with you and I was like oh that's interesting um uh, there's something about the mediated uh medium that allows us to perceive in a different way than if there we're worried about the social graces I, I, I don't think we should go too far down in that direction, but I just like, uh, I think that this is a very playful, playful story. And some of the things don't wouldn't come across maybe necessarily in audio as well um, because of the, uh, the punning nature of them. So on uh, page 65, and you, you read it as I, I did, um, they misdial because they are unconsciously saying nine to the zero zero of death. Nine, as in N-E-I-N, German word for no. Um, <laughs> he's doing some amateur psychology. Uh, 
Um, but he doesn't apply that same amateur psychology to himself, does he? Well, the speaker doesn't, but what I'm suggesting is that maybe Wellen does. Oh, of course, of course. Right? He, I mean, on that he's same... He's delusional on that same, in, a, in a large respect is one reading of this story. Um, and the fact that it's published in a magazine in, in 1958 or 1957 uh, would make us suspect that he did lose the document. Somehow it blew out the window when he stepped out of the train. <laughs> um, and yet we're reading it now, 60 years later, as a time capsule. And I have to remind myself what Bobby Soxers are and uh, Stravinsky's, you know, he's not as popular as he once were back in those egghead days, you know, <laughs> the long haired music that nobody talks about is long haired music anymore. Right. So there's uh, a huge time capsule as aspect to this story. Completely. I don't know what that N Y H and H. What what is that? Do you know what? That's the New York, New Haven, and Hartford. It's a railway, uh -huh. which has since been, since been absorbed into Amtrak. Right. Um. There is a, a possibly a typo in the manuscript of the of the story. Um. At one point he says that's why Barton's Mercocos or Microcosmos. And then later on, it's Bartok. Now, Bartok is a real composer, and Microcosmos is a real um, set of compositions. Um, but is it, as he says, because of the bumping of the train, or is it the, the transcript uh, turned to typo in the processing of this story into a magazine? Since this, since this was published in a pulp magazine, um, my... My guess is that the most likely reason is that uh, the it's just a, a, a typo in the, the typesetting. Indeed. It's entirely possible. Uh, but the choice of microcosmos is, is very interesting mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a set of, of etudes that get harder and harder and harder as you get further and further up. And it's pretty and hard it's to whistle them. Yeah, very hard. While you chew um, gum, no less. <laughs> there, there are other things, though, that, that I think add to uh, the notion that what Wellen is doing is conscious. Uh, he says on 65, um, that is the, the speaker on 65 says, I'm talking about the psychopathology of everyday life. Now, if Wellen had wanted to signal to, well, Wellen wanted to signal to the reader that nine was going to be a pun because it's written in italics as if it were a foreign word, which it is, it's German, and it's spelled N-E-I-N. So a reader, which is what this story was, I presume, intended to be done, read with the eyes for publication in a magazine, mm -hmm. um, Wellen created a visual uh, signpost that this was a pun. But on the previous column of that page, when the speaker says, I'm talking about the psychopathology of everyday life, he does not italicize psychopathology of everyday life nor capitalize the initials. But in fact, the psychopathology of everyday life is a very famous treatise by Sigmund Freud published in 1901. And it's exactly the kind of reasoning that leads to the idea that if you put your finger in the nine instead of the zero, you've made a Freudian slip. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what what is being argued here, again, is this kind of 
take this an ambivalent position. On the one hand, there is a satire of of Freudian thinking. It's like, oh my God, how silly to presume this, you know. But in fact, since this has to do with the old rotary dials, when he says you've put your finger on it, yep. um, he, he's saying something that's correct. And in fact, a lot is made of the fact that he keeps saying an undertaker, oh, I mean, funeral director, because it happens twice. Mm-hmm. So the op, th- this fellow is unconsciously to him, but maybe to us, and maybe Wellen wants us to see this, this fellow is the next closest thing to being a funeral director. Hmm. That is, what he is undertaking to do may be the death of individuality because he is trying to manipulate numbers to make the world over into something that amuses him since he is in fact someone with no human connections to amuse him in ordinary life. There's a lot going on in this story. The humor has, in my view at least, uh, really powerful um, implications thematically and as a critique of, of that society. But the thing is, we're still listening to polls. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be when I was a kid, um, if you read a movie review in a newspaper, it told you about the movie. Nowadays, when you read about the movies in the newspaper, they tell you what the first weekend gross was. Mm-hmm. So you know whether or not a lot of people have decided it was good. And if the second weekend gross falls off, you know you shouldn't bother. But if it keeps up, then you know you should do it. Well, why did it keep up? Was it really word of mouth? Mm-hmm. Or was it those individuals who managed to get their opinions across? Um, this is, a, I think, a timely story not only in its relation to number, but going back to what you said, Jesse, about Wellen's concern with dealing with voices at a distance, it's a a timely story about Western society with lives that are ever more attenuated because our connections to each other are only through our social media rather than through real socializing. I'm, I, I, I want to just hit one final thing that just came, popped into my mind, probably psychoanalyzable at some point. But as you were talking there, I just realized, yeah, he's, he, he is talking about these numbers. And his number's up in a certain sense. I think he's dead at the end of the story. Listen to this. I'm planning, for example to place on the hit parade D-H-A-L-Y apostrophe S Dallas Concerto in Alpha Wave for Oscillograph and Woodwinds. To me, I don't think that... I I haven't looked it up. I have a feeling that's not a real uh, production uh, uh, any kind of music. But Alpha Waves and Oscillograph, that's like somebody hooked up to a bunch of machines, like they're dying. Yeah, and the fact that this is published in a time fairly contemporaneous with when it was supposed to have been written makes me think, you know, he stepped off the train, had a heart attack, the paper slips out of his hand, and some New York editor at uh, Infinity Magazine is supposed to have, you know, picked it up and and published it just as a story, right? That kind of extra little element. 
makes it a lot sadder than I originally had thought. This is uh, the the illustration. I love looking at the originals. Has a very self-satisfied looking man sitting patiently with his hands raised in almost a prayer, waiting for the phone to ring. Yeah. And as as the illustrator captures your sense of Wellen's um, obsessions, the phone is way out of scale. Yes, it's you know it's it it really dominates the picture in a way that it shouldn't. I I don't know, and I don't think you're asserting that the story tells us this is in a way a suicide note. Um, but the fact of the man's death, whether it's going to be that day or in a week or in a decade, I think that sadness that you talk about is is in fact there in that last mm-hmm. paragraph just before um, just before he gives that line that you read. I'm not writing down these numbers. I want to keep the line clear for posters. Um, this document is a hostage to fortune. Right. It's a hostage to fortune, uh, which could mean money because he's a CPA, but I think he means fate. And I'm taking into account, again, he's a CPA, accounts have a meaning, the possibility that I might lose it while commuting. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that seems to me to bear out your, your sensitivity to the, to the underlying emotions, because this man, the speaker, He's not thinking of going forward in life. He's just thinking of shuttling back and forth. His life gets nowhere. The only place it can go is if at least he can affect other people and change their futures. And one can see why that might give him some joy, because he sees no change in his own life. According from the same page, page 66, as you can see, I've had to harden my heart. Wow, that takes on new resonance. It does. But there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.